Did you know that the musical Cabaret was adapted from the semi-autobiographical novel Goodbye to Berlin, written by one of the most distinguished authors of the 20th century, Christopher Isherwood? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about the intersection of culture, politics, and fiction with author Brian Finney on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the diverse work of award-winning author Dr. Brian Finney. But first, a trivia question. When the musical Cabaret was initially being developed, it was envisioned as a star vehicle for which legendary actress of stage and screen. I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Brian Finney on my show today. Brian has published seven nonfiction books and two novels. He's won awards for his biography of Christopher Isherwood and for his debut suspense novel, Money Matters. His writings have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, the LA Weekly, the Irish Times, the Chicago Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, and numerous other journals and anthologies. In his former life, he was a literature professor in London and several universities in Southern California. When I found out about the diversity of topics Brian has explored in his writing, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Brian will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Brian. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm delighted to be with you. You started your career writing nonfiction. Why did you decide to move into writing fiction? Well, I didn't actually realize I was going to do that until I retired from full-time teaching. And um, suddenly, uh, you know, I wish there was a sort of blinding moment of illumination that I could tell you about. But I, I really drifted into it. And suddenly I found myself totally caught by it. And what caught me mostly was finding the voice in that first novel. Once I had a voice, I couldn't stop writing. There was no, no chance of writer's block or anything. And that novel was Money Matters. It's a coming-of-age mystery about a 27-year-old who is faced with the tragic disappearance of her friend and is forced to take on financial tycoons, corrupt politicians, and a treacherous drug cartel in her search to uncover the truth. What drew you to these themes? I, I think it was primarily, well, I mean, the, there are two, two major themes there. One, one is the disparity in wealth, because there she is barely getting by, um, you know, in part-time jobs and living in her sister's and paying her sister exorbitant rent for a bedroom and bath. And on the other hand, she's working for, you know, these multimillionaires, particularly the uh, CEO of the mutual fund company that she works for and does plant maintenance for. And at the same time, I also 
was really fascinated by the way politicians have made, turned immigration into a football to maintain their own voting power, so to speak. So, I mean, obviously, a novel is not about issues, it's about people. And once I conjured her out of my imagination, she started serving, you know, my purposes wonderfully. Um, And so that's how it occurred. As a mature male from the UK, why did you decide to write the novel from the perspective of a young American woman? That's what all my friends asked, too. Uh, I wanted to have a major character who was as distant from me as possible. I didn't want this to turn autobiographical. And so, you know, I made her young, not old. I made her female, not male. <laughs> I made her American, not Anglo-American, right? you know. So I had a lot of difficulty actually getting rid of the um, American expressions, etc. A lot of my friends had to say, no, 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 we don't say that. <laughs> so you had readers who were American who gave yeah. you some help with or assistance with that. They certainly did. And even then they didn't they didn't spot them all, you know, one or two crept through. I'm you, talking about Americanisms. You state the novel explores themes of immigration and wealth disparity. Why did you choose to explore these topics? Um, because I think both of them, I mean, particularly living in Southern California, where I do, immigration is a big deal. And I think that not just America, but particularly America is, if you like, afflicted by an increasing disparity in wealth that is really eating away at, it, at its society. So, I mean, I think it's a very important theme to explore and how better to explore it than you know with two characters who are opposite ends of the spectrum so to speak and you set your novel during the 2010 midterm election why did you choose that period of time for the story to take place um in particular because the midterm election was between Meg Whitman and Jerry Brown and immigration was the major contentious issue there. And as I reflect in the novel in a different manner, she was discovered towards the end of the election period to have employed an illegal immigrant herself, even though she was standing on an anti-immigrant platform. And even that I found very hypocritical because earlier on when she was just in the primary, she was very rabidly anti-immigrant. And then in the main election, she became much softer because she needed to win you know, the votes of some of the immigrants, or at least ex-immigrants. Um, and also, I may, instead of having, I have Jerry Brown election, electioneering in the novel, but instead of Meg Whitman, I have, in fact, the brother of the CEO for whom my major character works. By making one of the semi-major characters the opponent to Jerry Brown, I was actually able to integrate the political into the narrative in a very believable, I hope, believable manner. So now it's 11 years later, and in what ways do you think the U.S. has changed as far as immigration and wealth disparity? Well, I mean, we've seen the, you know, the four Trump years when a very different immigration policy was applied. And we're still looking at the horror of hundreds of children separated from their parents, which was should never have ever been allowed. It's almost a sort of cliche to say that we've become more polarized, but we have become more polarized. And the scary thing is that it isn't over just because the election is over. I mean, we have a whole party now that is subscribing to a massive electoral lie, which is something I never would have imagined I would sort of you know, witness in my lifetime. And I don't even see how we're going to emerge from this at the moment. It's it's a scary scenario. Even in a fictional sense, it's hard to imagine the way in which this will be resolved. It is. 
I agree. In fact, that's one of the things I'm tussling with at the moment for my next book. So it's obvious you were born in London and earned your PhD at the University of London, and you also taught there. In 1987, you relocated to Southern California. Why did you decide to move to the United States? Well, the job I was in was basically the equivalent of chair of extension. That's what we would think of here. And so I was living under the th in the Thatcher years, in the 80s, when she was severely cutting adult education, uh, as it's known there. I mean, very severely cutting. And as chair, I thought and I said, what are you doing? You're actually, you know, executing, making real <laughs> the policies you disagree violently with. And meantime, I'd been doing the occasional summer school at either USC or U UCLA. And I thought I much prefer teaching and not being bothered with all this administrative nonsense. And at the same time, the summer before I immigrated in 1986, I met my now American wife, which also added an incentive, though she swears it was the dog that brought me over. And so there was a dog involved as well? Oh, well, she had she had an adorable dog, yes, and she said I fell in love with the dog. <laughs> you lived in Venice Beach for over 30 years. How has that informed your work? Well, for a start, I love Venice. Uh, it's, it's a very unique community. It's not like your average suburban, you know, experience over here. Uh, it has a very mixed community. It had an African-American enclave that then suddenly Los Angeles woke up to the fact that Venice Beach was very cheap property-wise, you know, in terms of property costs. We had a lot of yappies move into the area. We had a lot of techs move into the area. But it's still therefore very mixed. I mean, you still have a lot of the original inhabitants here. Uh, it's always been an arts community. You see people going past on their skateboards, carrying palm fronds or what have you. It's just very bizarre and wonderful. So it's, it provided me with a perfect, what should I say, I, I felt at home from the moment I got here. Uh, as an immigrant myself. And a lot of inspiration for your writing. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, as, as you know, Money Matters was actually set in my hair. Mm. And then your novel, Dangerous Conjectures, is an explosive family drama set in the Bay Area during the early months of the pandemic. Tell us about that story. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I know the Bay Area relatively well because I have a friend who lives where my my two major characters live in Oakland. And I also, I wanted to uh, draw in the approaching pandemic without actually describing their lives after a lockdown occurred. So as you know, the novel ends right at the moment when the schools and the businesses close. And at the same time, I had become fascinated at the beginning of the year by QAnon. Now, at the beginning of 2020, nobody, none of my friends had heard of QAnon. They said, what, what on earth is that? And how ridiculous? And that'll go nowhere. And I couldn't, like Adam in the novel, I, I really couldn't understand how it could acquire such a following and, and an increasing following and how it could become so influential in, you know, the White House government circles, etc. So that's what really made me go for that. As far as conspiracy theory is concerned, I should have mentioned it when you asked me, you know, what has changed since 2010? I mean, we've always had conspiracy theories around, but they've never had played the major role that they've come to play in the last few years. And in particular, that year, 2020, it became a, a major consideration in, in the election. And it was also, there, there was a parallel that suggested itself to me between, on the one hand, the spread of the virus, and on the other hand, the spread of 
of misinformation. And I, I deliberately tried to sort of draw those two threads together in the, in the book and, and their effect on our two major characters, one of whom is a scientist and who is completely sceptical about, you know, anything that cannot be proven or non-factual. In fact, if anything, he's too. I mean, one of the things that occurs in the novel is that he has to learn that, I mean, he knows this, but he has to remind himself that science is not a cut and dried affair. That science is a matter of reducing the unlikeliness of things, gradually narrowing down the possibilities, but there's always, always the chance that you've missed something. You've never completely found the total truth anything. So uh, at any rate, that, you know, and, that, and then there's Julia, who is for the first time in her life confronted with the possibility of dying from the pandemic and who does some fairly wild things as a result of the panic and fear that you know, she she feels. And how does Dave's violence play into the wider themes of the novel? Well, D- Dave, as as you know, is an ex of hers who reappears and who then she thinks she can get rid of him and can't. And as a result, he stalks her and becomes an increasing danger to her and the entire family. Well, at the same time, you have the primaries going on. And in my novel, in the primaries, the government and the White House and the president are all interested in creating chaos and violence in order to undermine the legitimacy of the forthcoming general election. And, and you know, the, the novel actually contains one or two of those scenes of violence. The title Dangerous Conjectures is a quotation from Hamlet, and there are other brief allusions to Hamlet. What parallel are you trying to establish between Hamlet and the world of your novel? Well, if you remember, Denmark is, is a rotten state. And I think America it might not be a rotten state, but it's, it's certainly in danger. And it's in danger from the same reasons that it, at that right at the head is somebody who is lying and deceiving the population in in general. And at the same time, there's Hamlet's sense of inability to be able to do anything about it in the same way that, that Adam finds himself, you know, he thinks he, he might be able to do something about the link between QAnon and the White House, only to be completely silenced very effectively by government agents. So that the only thing he can do really is to try and make peace at home. That's just, he, he, he cannot affect the, the overall situation in the country. I want to talk a little bit about your award-winning critical biography of Christopher Isherwood. He's a 20th century writer who is perhaps best known for his works Goodbye to Berlin, a semi-autobiographical novel which inspired the musical Cabaret, and A Single Man, which was adapted as a film by Tom Ford in 2009. What got you interested in Isherwood's life and work? When I was in England, I mean, he was seen to be one of the two major stylistic trendsetters, if you like, of the the mid-century. And I was astonished when I started, I thought, oh, I'll teach one or two of his books, which I did. And there was virtually nothing available in terms of secondary source material. I thought this is ridiculous. Uh, So I thought, well, maybe a critical biography would be the most comprehensive response to that. And so I asked him and he's he's tremendously open-minded and said, yes, you know, you can do whatever you like. (laughs) Um, And that brought me over, actually that brought me over here to interview him in Santa Monica and interview his friends. And that was like, that was in the um, late seventies. And one of the, one of the interviewees was Maria Huxley, you know, second wife, who is a bit of a psychic. And as I was leaving, she said to me, you know, you're going to be coming back here. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you're going to be living in Los Angeles. 
So I went, I said, oh, really, thank you. And I went away, you know, being the skeptic that I am, poo-pooing it, and thinking, oh, so much for psychics. And, you know, here I am over 30 years in Los Angeles. <laughs> so that was quite extraordinary. But, I mean, you know, he's a great writer. Uh, I, I thought it worth spending the time and trouble write an entire book and um, I, I did I did make it a critical biography rather than just a biography so that every other chapter takes that equivalent piece of work that he's written during that period of time and analyzes it and I think the only thing I would say about it now is that if anything because it was my first biography I was almost I accepted everything he told me with too little skepticism shall we say it could have been a little bit more distance than it was but I like his work it's great. If you could invite three famous people, living or dead, to a dinner party, who would you invite and why? <laughs> I'd invite William Shakespeare for the simple reason we know virtually nothing about him. I would be cross-questioning him about his life and work. I think I would invite Abraham Lincoln because he was somebody at a crucial moment in American history. And he himself was ambiguous. Right? You know, the more you read about him, I mean, the less you know, clear-cut it becomes. And I would invite Samuel Beckett, who I did actually meet for an hour in Paris once, because I think he's a quintessential man of our time, somebody who has who believes that everything we do, whether it's philosophical or art or falling in love, they're just mere distractions because we can't face the reality, which is that the reality is nothingness. Le néant, as he puts it, you know. So um, I, I, I would really enjoy all three of those, hopefully not all at the same time. That sounds like a fabulous dinner party, and I want to be invited as well. You would. <laughs> What's one question you wish someone would ask about your work that no one has asked you yet? It, it, that's a hard one. I, I mean, I guess it would have something to do with, do you think either of your books could be translated into films, movies? To which my answer would be yes, but not blockbusters. They would be more like art movies. Well, it would be a wonderful question to have someone ask if they had Wouldn't funding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Not really. I, I haven't made up my mind what the next book will be, but it won't be a continuation of either of those two books, I don't think. I think it will probably have in the background, as all my books do, they have major sort of political and social themes. It'll be a re revisiting or, yes, a revisiting of the financial disparity that we're all facing. And it might, I, I, was, I was playing with the idea of having a one percenter outside whose house a woman in her 40s he would be in his 60s or 70s or something park her van being homeless and it would start off with him being furious and leaving notes on her van etc etc and eventually it would land up with her taking care of him but I'm not sure I can bring it off I, I've been playing around with that <laughs> I love that idea and homelessness is also an issue that I would like to tackle in my fiction as well I think it's an important issue and one that hasn't been addressed in a lot of uh, fictional work yeah I agree I agree is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Well, only that I have a very extensive website that, that will tell you a lot more about me than I've been able to tell you in this short time, which is at bhfinney.com. And both of my books are available as audiobooks, as paperback and as ebook uh, on Amazon. It was great to have you on the show, Brian. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. And thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And now the answer to this episode's trivia question. When the musical cabaret was initially being developed, it was envisioned as a star vehicle for which legendary actress of stage and screen? 
When producer David Black began the process of adapting the play I Am a Camera into a musical, he envisioned Cabaret as a star vehicle for Julie Andrews. But Andrews' manager refused to allow her to accept the role of Sally Bowles due to the character's immorality. We'll end the show with something punny. What did my husband say when my brand new book fell on the floor? You only have your shelf to blame. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Curious Professor Podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to The Curious Professor Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.